Wendy, thank you, Jordan. You guys sound good together. Way to go. So uh, those of you who have been around and a part of Walloon Lake Community Church and what God is doing here for several years know that some time ago we felt uh, compelled by the Lord to do something, to attempt something, uh, that if God wasn't in it, it was going to fail miserably. And uh, here we are, a little over 18 months after beginning uh, worship services over at East Jordan Community Church, which makes us one church with two locations. And sometimes people ask, well, what does that mean? Are you really connected? Uh, well, yeah, we have the same mission, we have the same purpose, uh, we share the same word of God and the same uh, desire to teach it. Uh, we share pastors as well. And so Pastor Jeff is over at the East Jordan location this morning. Uh, those of you who haven't been around that long probably don't know that I'm Jason Ritchie. I am the campus pastor over at that location, and I get to be with you guys today. And uh, that's an exciting treat for me. For one thing, I enjoy being able to see you and hang out with you and worship with you on a Sunday morning. Uh, that's a, a rare occasion. Now, for another thing, I got to sleep in this morning. Uh, we start our first service at 8 o'clock over there, and uh, here it's at 9, and so I got an extra hour of sleep uh, for which I appreciate. But some of you regularly ask me, uh, how are things going over there? I know that some of you continue to faithfully pray for what God's doing in East Jordan. And I can tell you this, God continues to show up. And uh, he's doing what only he could do over there. There's some exciting things happening uh, on a weekly basis. Um, you know, almost two years in now, people keep coming. We did have to add that 8 o'clock service in order to have room for everybody that was there. Um, we've got a lot of folks that come and don't know Jesus Christ yet, and our mission was to make disciples and share the gospel with those who wouldn't hear otherwise. And, and I'm, I'm proud and excited at what God's doing to tell you that a lot of folks have come to Christ and uh, received Jesus as their Savior. Uh, we just are finishing this week our first uh, round of Starting Point, that class that's designed to help folks folks, uh, get into a habit of spending time with Jesus and understand the basics of how to do that and feed themselves spiritually. And uh, we're looking forward to starting that again for another round in September, just like we are here in Walloon Lake. Um, we've, every time that we offer an opportunity for someone to make a public statement of their faith uh, by being baptized, every time that we offer an opportunity to join the church in membership, we have folks that respond and we continue to see God doing things that only he could do. Uh, that doesn't mean that we're done or that we've arrived. It, we need you to keep praying. And some of you want to know, okay, what, what, what can we pray about? And I'll give you a couple of needs, a couple of things that you can be uh, seeking the Lord on, on our behalf over there at East Jordan. Uh, number one, I told you we started an 8 o'clock service because a lot of people are coming and we need more room. Well, not a lot of people are coming to that 8 o'clock service. They don't like to get up early any more than I do. And so over the next few months, we've got to figure out how to shift our services um, to probably 9 and 10.45, just like here, to make it more accessible to everybody so we can have enough room in our main service. And that means that we've got to move all of our small groups. We just have a space issue, and there's just some logistics that we've got to work out, and we're going to need the Lord to guide us and give us the right answers on those decisions. Another uh, need that we have is also our greatest opportunity in East Jordan, I believe, and to make an impact on the community for Jesus Christ. There are 500 students in the uh, East Jordan middle school and high school. And there's not a single church or organization that is intentionally trying to reach students who don't know Jesus yet. 
And if we're going to, to, to see him do that, if he's going to use us to do that, we're going to need to be able to hear from him on how to get that done and who's going to lead uh, in meeting that need and caring for the needs of our students there in East Jordan. Uh, so there's a couple areas you can pray for. I want to encourage you to do that because prayer works. Uh, what God's doing over there is because his people have been praying and looking to him. And, and the bottom line is... God is making disciples at East Jordan Community Church just like he is here at the Walloon location. There are over 30 people who didn't know Jesus Christ two years ago, and now they do. And you are going to share eternity in heaven with them because you were willing to pray and we were willing to do what God asked us to do. So continue to seek the Lord on behalf of the needs and the opportunities over there. At East Jordan, we're working through 1 Timothy verse by verse, just like we are here at Walloon. And uh, so we are a few weeks behind, so as Jeff goes over to share the message this week, he's going to be sharing with them from 1 Timothy 5 uh, the, the same challenge to care for our widows that he shared with you here a few weeks ago. And uh, over here, um, we're talking about um, uh, something similar to what's in this bowl. Anybody notice the bowl and already started to wonder what's in that bowl? Um, <clears throat> I get good news for you. If you've heard stories from East Jordan, it's not a pig. I can tell you that. Um, but I can tell you that it's going to help us to consider what we're talking about today. What we got here is a whole bunch of uh, loose change. <clears throat> Quite a bit of it, actually. And... Um, I know that some of you probably need something more than spare change uh, to get your attention. And so I want to tell you about a custom that's kind of making the rounds in some, uh, some communities uh, in our, our society, specifically professional football players. You know, they sign these multi-million dollar contracts and then uh, they want to show off how much money they have. And as a status symbol, they use something called making it rain. Making it rain is where they take their mad stacks of cash and they go into a crowded club where a bunch of people have gathered and uh, they make it rain cash. And they allow everybody to gather around and take the money that's fallen to the ground and fluttering in the air uh, just to demonstrate just how filthy rich they are and how successful they've become. Of course, that's also probably one of the reasons why a recent study showed that 80% of all professional football players are broke two years after retiring from the NFL. You see, money is something that we all focus on, and it gets an awful lot of attention in our society, in our culture, and not just with professional football players, but with all of us. It's a big deal. It's also a polarizing idea in our society. Money separates us in a lot of ways. For example, a lot of people look at rich folks and say, they're bad. They're, they're evil, they've done horrible things, they're greedy, and they've taken advantage of others in order to make that money, and so they should feel guilty for having so much money in their bank account. And at the same time, a lot of folks look at poor people and say, they're bad, because they're lazy or they're stupid, and if they would just be more disciplined, then they could be more successful. Money divides people in huge ways in our culture. And the good news is, as important as money is to us, God's Word talks a lot about money. 
And so if you want to know what God's word says about handling your money so you don't run out of it, whether you have millions of dollars or just a little a couple of nickels to, run to get, rub together, uh, you can take the principles of God's word and apply them to your life and, and handle your money wisely as God challenges us to. That's not what we're talking about today. If that's something that you want to, to be exposed to and see the principles of God's word related to handling our money, I encourage you to take part in financial peace. Uh, there'll be another class starting up at September, I'm sure. If you're a young adult, uh, there's a program that just started last week that'll be meeting for the next uh, couple of months in order to help you learn now how to handle your money so it doesn't run out later. Scripture also talks an awful lot about how to use, use the money that God gives us in order to benefit Him and His kingdom and to use them for His glory. And that's not what we're going to talk about today either. If you want to get to know what God's Word has to say about that, I invite you to come back in two weeks. Pastor Jeff will be back and he's going to be sharing with you from the end of 1 Timothy 6 what God's Word has to say about how we can use the money that He's given us to bring glory to Him and further His kingdom. What we're going to talk about today is Paul's topic closer to the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's not money. It's our attitude towards our money. And with that in mind, I invite you to stand up now, as is our custom, and we're going to read together the text that we're going to study today. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. I know Pastor Jeff's going to ask me how you did, and so I'd love to give him a good report. Uh, read it out nice and loud, and here we go, starting in 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we want our attitude about money and possessions to match yours. Lord God, we know that money is a big deal in our culture, in our society. Money is a big deal in our workplaces, in our magazines, in our entertainment systems. Lord, money is a big deal in most of our houses. And money and possessions, they're a big deal in every one of our hearts, whether we like to admit it or not. Lord God, we ask that you would allow us to understand the truth of your word as it relates not just to money and possessions, but our attitude about those things. Father, we're going to need your spirit to instruct us. We're going to need your word to lay out for us what we should be doing and thinking in these areas. Lord God, we ask that your spirit would take control of our minds, of our hearts. And Father, that you would give us the grace to change our attitude wherever it's necessary and to walk out of here different than the way that we came in. 
Lord, it's only you that can accomplish that. So we're asking you, we're inviting you to show up and do what only you can do as you instruct us and change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Pop quiz for you based on last week's message. Why do we go to work? I'm hearing a few different things. Uh, if you were around last week, maybe you modified your answer. Most of us would have said, um, especially if we weren't thinking back to last week, we go to work so we can earn a paycheck, right? How many of you would go to your job tomorrow if they weren't stopped paying you today? Uh, a couple of hands. I'm impressed. Uh, the fact of the matter is we all like to eat. Some of us more than others. And uh, we like to send our kids to school with clothes on their backs. And most of us like to live in a house of some sort that will provide us shelter from the elements, especially during the winter, which probably it hasn't ended yet here in northern Michigan. And so we go to work in order to earn a paycheck. And that seems like a pretty reasonable proposition. But Pastor Jeff reminded us and showed us from God's Word in 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2 last week, the reason we should go to work has nothing to do with money. The reason we should go to work is for the reputation of God, to represent our Savior Jesus well. And that doesn't mean that we should t turn down the paycheck at the end of the week, all right? There is a system that God has put into place, and, and work is a good thing, not just because it represents Jesus well. He says if a man shouldn't work, he shouldn't eat, and so we need to be diligent about earning the things that we need in order to sustain our lives and our families, all right? Again, the message this morning isn't about money. It's about our attitude towards money. And we get in verse 3 in 1 Timothy chapter 6. In just four words, we get the cliff notes, a concise summary of the entire letter that Paul writes to young Timothy in his church at Ephesus. If anyone teaches otherwise, if anyone teaches what's contrary to what God's word says, last week it represented the main reason we should be going to work. Not so we can earn our keep or so that we can get a little bit more than the basic necessities in life, but because God wants to use us to be an example there. And if anyone says anything different, they're missing the boat. If anyone says something different that does not agree, verse 3, to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and the godly teaching, that's what the whole letter has been about, verse 4, they're conceited. Now, Think about that for a moment. Isn't it just a little bit arrogant of Paul to say, if you preach something that's different than what I say, you're conceited. Uh, Pastor Jeff, just a couple of weeks ago, stood in this place and named the names of some people that teach false things, that claim to be speaking the word of God, but they're not. They're speaking things contrary to God's word. Isn't it a little bit conceited for Jeff to name those names and say they're false teachers because they aren't saying the same thing that I am here at Walloon Lake Community Church? Because, I mean, really, who's to say that each of those folks that he named uh, gives some version of the message that God wants all of us to be healthy and, and happy and wealthy in our lives, and, and he's waiting to pour out all these blessings on us as long as we do things his way or the way that the false teacher says. And if that's not true. Who's to say? Who is it to say that, that those false teachers that Paul's talking about here or the false teacher that Jeff named a couple of weeks ago, that they're wrong? And who's to say that Paul and Pastor Jeff and Pastor Jason are right 
Isn't it just a little bit arrogant and conceited for us to think that we have the answers and they're wrong because they disagree? Let me be abundantly clear here. It's central to the entire message that Paul has for Timothy in this book and central to our understanding here of this particular text. These false teachers that Paul's talking about, those false teachers that Jeff named a few weeks ago, they are not wrong and they are not conceited because they disagree with us. They are wrong and they are conceited, Paul says, because they disagree with Jesus and they stand against what God's word has to say. And if we're gonna be honest, can you think of anything that's more conceited and arrogant than to say and claim that we're speaking for God and on his behalf, but we're gonna set aside what his word already said because I know more than God does. And I'm gonna tell you what I think and what I say and want you to live your life based on that rather than what God's word says. The only difference between these false teachers and Paul and Jeff and myself is we would say we want to teach God's word. We don't want to teach you what we think and what we say. And you better not be listening to those things. And, and God forbid that we set aside God's word in order to say what we think. Because God's the one who knows everything. And Paul says in verse 4, these false teachers, they understand nothing. They've got nothing to offer anybody. And he also goes into explaining some of the bad things, some of the consequences of these false teachers. When you set aside God's word and tell people things that don't line up to the book, all kinds of bad things happen, like controversies and quarrels and envy and strife and malicious talk and evil suspicions and constant friction and corrupt minds. He goes on to express a very specific one as it relates to this idea that we hear so often in our culture from people who claim to be speaking for God that what God wants is to stuff your pockets with money. And we find ourselves, if we buy into that teaching, if we listen to those who teach that that God wants all of us to be rich and wealthy and, and his blessings come in financial packages and possessions, And if we live his way, not Jesus' way, but the false teacher's way that's speaking, if we live and do what he says, then God is going to make it rain financial blessings and we're going to get soaked in the money that's going to pour down from heaven. If we follow that teaching, we may think that we're going to get soaked in God's blessings of finances, but really, Paul says, we're just going to get soaked. Look at verse 5. He says, what comes from that? is people who have been robbed of the truth. We're not going to gain financial blessings, as many people claim. We're going to be robbed. We're going to have stolen from us the very truth of God's word that says something quite different. It's going to cost you something to follow Jesus. It's not going to line your pockets with cash. He says the, the system that we often hear these false teachers saying is that if we pursue godliness or some form of it, usually a twisted form of it, and we have selfish motives, then that's going to translate into financial gain. That godliness is a means to making money. And Paul sets the record straight. He says that's a false equation. Here's how it really works. Because godliness plus selfishness equals destruction and division. And then he goes on to say, let me give you the right equation. Let me show you how this really works, folks. In verse 6, godliness, seeking after Jesus. 
and doing what the book says. Applying God's word to our lives. True godliness coupled with contentment. Being satisfied with what God has given us. Looking at God and saying, all you have already given me is more than enough. We all have a tendency to want a little bit more, even if we don't want to get rich today. We want a little bit more than we've got. Contentment says, what you've given me, Lord, is more than enough already. I'm satisfied. I'm not seeking after a little bit more. And godliness plus contentment, that is what equals great gain. God's not going to line your pockets with cash for being godly and being content with what he's given you, but he is going to pour out the true blessings that his word speaks of. And things like what's written on that banner back there that lists the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and gentleness and goodness and patience and faithfulness, all the things that are so lacking in our society and oftentimes in our lives. Godliness plus contentment. All I have in you, Lord, is more than enough for me. That produces great gain. Verse 7, he tells us why that attitude is appropriate. Being content with what we have. We brought nothing into the world. We didn't do anything to get or earn what we already have. If God didn't give it to us, we don't get it. And, verse 7 says, we can take nothing out of this world either. Whatever it is that we accumulate, whatever efforts we put into trying to line our pockets with cash and stuff our houses and garages with possessions, none of it's going with us when God calls us home. So how valuable can it really be? He goes on to say, verse 8, but if we have food and we have clothing, we'll be content with that. If we've got our basic needs covered, and God has already seen fit to give us physical life. And he gives us the opportunity for, through, for spiritual life, a relationship with our creator through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. And he adds to that food and clothing. Isn't that enough? And if we're honest, most of us will come to the answer, no, we want a little bit more than that. And that's what Paul is teaching against. He says in verse 9, those who want to get rich are those who want to get rich the slow way, just a little bit at a time, more than what we've got, fall into temptation. He says, watch your step, folks. Timothy, watch out. Church at Ephesus, watch out. Church at Walloon, watch your step. This temptation to want a little bit more and get more and more and more and not be content with what God has already given us It's a trap. And if you fall into it, bad stuff is going to happen. Look at verse 9. He says, when you fall into that trap, foolish and harmful desires will plunge you into ruin and destruction. This isn't just a wrong way trip and we got to turn around and go back and say, oops, I made a mistake. This is destruction that will come from us if we go chasing after money and living for a little bit more rather than being content with what we already have. And people all around are telling us just the opposite and claiming to be speaking for God. We have folks that that are teaching just the opposite. They're saying that God wants you to have a little bit more. In fact, God wants you to have a lot more. And if you just do things the way that I say, then you'll get more and more and more. And that's God's plan for every one of us. And that is false. 
It's contrary to the teaching of God's word, including the clear teaching of this passage. It's not a new message. It was going on 2,000 years ago in Ephesus. And we're still needing to watch our step that we don't fall into that trap. He says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You ever wonder why those false teachers exist? Has it ever occurred to you, you know what, if they're speaking false things, if they're setting aside God's word and saying something different, I know how dangerous that is spiritually, why in the world would anybody do that? Well, some of them are deceived. They believe the lies that they're saying because they haven't examined God's word for themselves, and they're saying things that are outside of God's word because they don't know the truth. Others of those folks are evil. They know that they're standing in opposition to God, and that's where they want to be. And they teach things that they know are opposed to the truth of the word because they're living and working for the enemy, not for God, and they know it. But a lot of them, a lot of the false teachers that we see are just greedy. They want more than what they have, more than what God has chosen to give them. For example... Every one of those false teachers that Jeff named a few weeks ago, every one of them has a net worth in the multiple millions of dollars. I'm not talking about the cost of the church that they meet in on Sundays or the uh, amount of revenue that their particular ministries take in during a year or over the course of their lifetime. I'm not even talking about the tools that they claim to use for ministry, like the Rolls Royces and the Cadillacs and the private jets and the mansions on the lakefront that they stay in once a month. I'm talking about their personal possessions and money and net worth. For example, Creflo Dollar is reported to be worth $27 million. Joel Osteen, $40 million. Benny Hinn, $42 million. And Ken Copeland has claimed himself to be worth a billion dollars. And the fact is, it's not wrong to be rich. There's nothing wrong with having lots of money, even a billion dollars. What is wrong What's dangerous and damaging and destroys people is when we desire to be rich and we allow that to drive us to wander from the faith, as Paul says in verse 9. And when we do that, we're on dangerous ground. We've fallen into a trap. And the saddest part is I believe that some of those false teachers probably started out desiring to be used for God. To teach the word of God accurately and, and to change lives with the message of Jesus Christ. And whatever it was that God chose to provide them with and bless them with financially or monetarily or, or physically or with their possessions and their houses and such, they wanted a little bit more. And they found, just as Paul says, that using a form of godliness, they could find a vehicle for financial gain. The question to ask about those guys isn't how much money do they have, what's their net worth. The question to ask yourself is, would they have that much money if they focused on the truth of God's word? If their teaching centered around what the Bible centers on, which is Jesus and the cross and the centrality of the word of God that he's already revealed to us and the need that every one of us has for Jesus because of the sin in our lives and pointed everyone to Christ is the answer rather than to a system to gain financial benefits. You wonder how they got so rich? Because people love to buy what they're selling. The message that says that if you do this and you do that and you please God, he'll 
line your pockets with cash. He'll shower you with financial blessings of money. That sounds like a really good message to a lot of people. Why? Because all of us, at least sometimes, want a little bit more. And people by the thousands are falling into the same trap that these false teachers have fallen into. They want to get rich a little bit more at a time. And it won't end well. Look at what the passage says. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. What happens? They've pierced themselves with many griefs. They think they're seeking happiness and satisfaction in all this stuff. And what they get is just the opposite. Destruction and division. I want you to notice this message isn't focused on money. It's our attitude about money. Verse 10 says, the love of money. It's not money that's evil. The love of money is the root that grows into evil things that we do in in pursuit of it. We've got to keep our attitude towards money and possessions in check. The way we do that is to find ourselves content with what God has already given us. And so we've got to turn the corner now and say, okay, that's what the message is, is teaching. That's what Paul said to Timothy about the false teachers in Ephesus. What do we do with this message? How do we apply Paul's teaching here in Walloon in 2013? How do we walk out of here different than the way we came in? It's particularly challenging because the message is about our attitude, not about our actions. It's about how we feel about money and how much we want more, not about how much we have. And so it's tempting for us to check out and say, this really doesn't apply to me. I'm doing fine here. I'm good. Thanks for uh, sharing the message. Let's move on to the next section next week. It's really easy for us to say, I don't listen to those false teachers that Jeff was talking about. I don't get my spiritual food and my teaching of God's word from the TV set. And so I'm not worried about that stuff. I'm not being influenced by those negative things so I can tune out. Well, the fact of the matter is, in our culture... We are constantly surrounded by the message that those guys promote. It may not be coming from a a context and and pretending to be God's word, but every time we turn on the TV set and see a, a commercial, every time we drive down the road and see a billboard advertising something, every time our kids come up to us and say, hey, Johnny down the street has such and such, can I have two of them? We're getting the message that money is what matters. It's odd that our cash... All of our currency says, in God we trust. Because the only way that that is true in our society is if money is our God. We're surrounded by messages, even if they don't pretend to be from God's word, that we need more. If there's one concept that is truly and uniquely American, it's this. You need a little bit more. And we're constantly surrounded by that lie that surrounds us every day. And so it's really hard for us to find a place of contentment and stay there. The traps and the the temptations are all around us. And so it's easy for us to think, I have some stuff and God's blessed me with some things. And and maybe I have a lot, maybe I have a little, but I'm content with what I got. I I don't love money. I'm I'm a pretty content person. And, And can I tell you, I feel that way. I think I'm pretty good at being content with what God's given me. For one thing, he's given me a lot more than I deserve. Amen? And most of you can say that too, but I really mean it. I know that God has blessed me far beyond what 
I deserve to ask of him. And, and I think that I do a really good job of being content and satisfied and saying, God, you've given me so much already, thank you so much, and trying to enjoy it and use it responsibly and all those things. And, and, and I don't sit around thinking, how can I make another dollar today? How can I add another hundred bucks to my bank account this week? How can I save another thousand dollars for my retirement in, in a few years? That's just not where my mind usually goes. And so when I compare myself to other people, even Christians, I tend to think I'm doing pretty good in this department. So maybe I got some room to talk about this. But the fact of the matter is, when I look into God's word, and I think of, say, Paul's example, who said, I know what it is to have plenty, and I know what it is to be genuinely in need. And I've learned to be content in every situation. When I compare myself to Paul, I realize, you know what? I got some more work to do. I'm not quite as content in every area of my life as I should be. There's this thing over here that, that, yeah, I like what I have, but I want a little bit more. And when I let God work on me and I let the Holy Spirit reveal to me, there's this other area. I got some kind of nice thing right there that God granted me with, but I want a little bit more. And over here and over there and everywhere I look, I realize I want a little bit more. That is not contentment. And then I compare myself to Jesus Christ himself. And I see how he was willing to give up all the riches of glory as the king of the universe and set all that aside and give up every bit of it in order to come be born in a barn and live a perfect life and die on a cross as a common criminal in order to meet somebody else's needs. Mine. And when I compare myself to other people, I think I'm doing pretty good. When I compare myself to Scripture, I realize how much work I have to do. And when I compare myself to Jesus, I got a lot of work to do in the area of contentment. There's a lot of traps that I could easily fall into. And maybe I've already got to let God dig me out of those pits before they destroy me and the people around me. So if we're honest and we begin to recognize we're not totally content in every area, if we're willing to say, I'm not as good as I think I am, what do we do? How do we avoid falling into that trap? How do we let God dig us out of it if we're already in it? Jesus deals with a man in Mark chapter 10 that I think gives us a pretty good start. You may be familiar with the story, but in Mark 10, 17, Jesus was on his way and a man ran up to him. And fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And if you know the story, you already know that Jesus tells him, well, what you're going to have to do in order to inherit eternal life is to live God's word perfectly. Do everything that it says every single time because no one who's imperfect can enter the kingdom of God. And you may also know that this guy somehow was able to grossly overestimate how good of a job he was doing in these areas because he said I have kept the law I've done it all since I was a little boy I've got this I don't need anybody to show me where I'm in error I'm doing pretty good and Jesus looked at him and loved him one thing you lack he said go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven Notice, he doesn't say, and you will have treasure lining your pockets. He doesn't say, and you'll have a garage with several really nice sports cars. He doesn't say, you'll have more possessions than anybody else who's not walking with me. He says, no, you'll have treasures in heaven. 
you'll have real blessings, not the warped ones that we think of as blessings, but turn out to be curses. He says, go sell everything and give it away and then come and follow me. The man's response is instructive to us. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus said, be content with what I've given you. And if you are, you'll be willing to give it all away if I ask you to. And so the question that I would ask you to consider, if Jesus asked you to give it all away, would you? While you're pondering that, I'm sure some of you are thinking, well, it's kind of a moot point. It doesn't really matter because Jesus hasn't asked me to give it away. He hasn't asked me to give up everything like he did for that rich man. And so I don't need to answer that question. It doesn't apply to me. Well, let me ask you another question then. If you think that Jesus didn't ask you to give away everything that, that you have, how do you know that? How do you know that he hasn't asked you to give away the money and possessions that he's blessed you with? You know, there's a, a story about three pastors that were uh, discussing their uh, various ways of handling finances in the church and, and uh, how they determined what their salaries were. And the first man said, well, what I do is I put a bowl on the floor of my office after the services are done, and I take everything that came in the offering plate, and I throw it up in the air, and if it falls in the bowl, then that's mine, and i got to get better aim or I'm going to starve. And if it falls on the floor, then that's God's, and we get to use it for other ministries around the church. And the next guy said, well, I do something kind of similar. What I do is I put the same bowl on the ground, and I take the same offerings that came in the offering plate, and I throw it up in the air, and what lands in the bowl... That's God's. And what lands on the floor, that's mine. I get to keep it. And the third pastor said, well, I do something kind of like that, only it really is different because I take the bowl away and I throw the money up in the air and I say, whatever God wants, he can take. If it hits the ground, it's mine, right? (laughs) And the fact of the matter is, I think all too often we approach God the same way. We say, God, I'd be willing to let you do whatever you want in my life but you're going to have to do a miracle to show me what it is. I'd be willing to give some of the things that you've given to me, um, and and I'd be willing to to be content with less than what I have, but you're going to have to do a miracle in order to show me that you want me to give up some of these hard-earned blessings that I enjoy. And the fact of the matter is I want a little bit more, not a little bit less. And so I want to challenge you with something. Go home today. Look around your house, your garage, your, your life. Pick something that you value, you enjoy. Not an essential, not the food, not the clothes on your kid's back. Um, talk to your spouse, all right, before you give away your house. Uh, but take something that you value and you find important to you, a possession that God has blessed you with, and give it away. And give it away. Now understand, this is me asking you to do this. I'm not pretending that I have a word from the Lord or that you'll be unspiritual if you don't do this this week. But I am saying, I'm encouraging you to reverse that process that that third preacher uses and say, I'm going to give this possession away unless you stop me, God. Unless you tell me not to, this is what I'm going to do. And why would you want to do that, you might ask. Here's why. We have a tendency to overestimate our goodness. We have a tendency not to see just how warped our hearts really are. We have a tendency to think, I got this contentment thing under control. This isn't a trap for me. This isn't something that I need to worry about. And the act of giving something away 
I believe, is something that God will use to show you the condition of your heart and how content or discontent you really are. If you want a, really bit, a little bit more, it's going to be really hard for you to have a little bit less. And if you go home and you decide what that possession is that you're going to give away and bless somebody else with, that won't make you any more spiritual or any more godly. It'll make you less wealthy. You'll have a little bit less net worth when you give that away. But I believe you'll have created some room for God to speak to you and talk to you about the true condition of your heart. And you'll learn an awful lot that you didn't realize you needed to know about your attitude towards money and possessions. We don't want to fall in this trap. And if we don't do nothing, there's a good chance we're going to wind up there. And so I'm encouraging you to go home and select something and give it away, not because God told you you have to, but just to make sure that you still can. Let's pray together. Father God, once again, we confess that we want to have your attitudes in our life. And at the same time, we confess that we know that there's not one person in this room that's righteous. Not even one. There's not one of us that doesn't at least sometimes struggle with contentment, with genuinely saying to you, all that you've already given me is more than enough. And it has nothing to do with why you've put me on this earth. Lord God, would you help us to determine what we should give away? I suspect that uh, there's some folks in this room who, who don't have a whole lot of practice at hearing from you. And Lord, I'm guessing that uh, some people who are thinking about taking up this challenge are hoping they hear from you, and you say, never mind, you don't have to do that. But Lord, I pray that you would use this simple challenge, this simple task, this gesture of willingness to not live for stuff, Lord, that you would use that to speak to us. Lord, would you let us hear not what we need to know about money and possessions, but what we need to know about our attitude towards it. Lord, would you speak to us? Would you challenge us? Would you reveal to us the condition of our hearts and then change it and make us more like you, more willing to be content? In Jesus' name, amen.